This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Hey, it's great to be together. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had an opportunity to meet, I just want to extend a welcome to you. And uh, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, even if you're new and perhaps not too familiar with the Bible, uh, my bet is that you're going to know the passage we're talking about today in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, that is the Lord's Prayer. And so I really worked hard at getting a creative title uh, for today's sermon. It is called the Lord's Prayer. Please hold your applause. But uh, So that's sometimes just better to be direct. That's what we're talking about, so I don't need to get creative with it. It's Matthew 6, uh, verses 5 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you, and if you would grab that, and turn to page 473, then we would be a, you'll be able to track along uh, with the message. And if, uh, as we're going through the sermon, if you have any kind of questions, uh, something comes to mind about the passage, about the Lord's Prayer, you can text those questions into the number that is up on the screen. And we do a weekly podcast that uh, comes out on Wednesdays where we <clears throat> seek to answer the questions uh, that you have, do the best we can. So uh, you can... Uh, Maybe your question will be featured. Last week, somebody's question got featured, won a prize. So you never know. You never know what can happen. Um, Okay, the Lord's Prayer. Let me read the text, and then we will uh, jump into it. So uh, this is Matthew 6, uh, verses 5 through 15. Let's listen to God's Word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, we're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is addressing the topic of hypocrisy. And in these verses, we looked at last week and saw in chapter 6, verse 1, that that is sort of a topic sentence, a theme for the next 18 verses or so. So I want to look back at verse 1 that we looked at last week, 6-1. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus is saying in this entire passage is that hypocrisy is doing the right thing for the wrong reason. That's what he's talking about here. It's practicing our righteousness. It's doing our spiritual disciplines. It's taking part in pious sort of activity for the applause of other people rather than for the approval of God. It's to seek to win the respect of others rather than to honor the Lord. And Jesus says that is hypocrisy. And what he does is he looks at three different areas where we can practice our righteousness to impress others rather than to honor God. So he talks about giving to the poor in particular, and we looked at that last week. 
He talks about prayer, we're looking at that right now, and then he talks about fasting, which we will look at next week. And in this section that we just read, Jesus teaches us two things about prayer. These are two kind of hooks that I'm going to hang everything on today. The first hook is how not to pray. He teaches us how not to pray, and the second hook is how to pray. So the comments I'm going to make this morning and the way this passage is outlined is through here's how you don't pray and here's how you pray. So first of all, how not to pray. Let's, let's note first of all that Jesus assumes that his disciples will pray. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not. And when you pray, not if you pray, but he assumes that prayer is part of being a follower, uh, being one of his followers. And when we do pray, we must not pray like the hypocrites or like the Gentiles. Sometimes it's translated the pagans. So not like the hypocrites or not like the pagans. Hypocrites, he says in verse 5, are those who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, we can quickly step back and check out and say, that doesn't apply to me. That's great Jesus was bringing this appropriate teaching to first century Jews, but I have never prayed on a street corner verbally that anybody could see and know, and maybe I've never prayed even in church or even at a small group meeting or something like that. So we can look at this and say, well, I haven't done the things Jesus is talking about, so it doesn't apply to me. But before we exempt ourselves prematurely, I'd like to point out that in this section, there are more words devoted to the warning against hypocrisy than there are words in the Lord's Prayer itself. Jesus, word for word count, actually in this passage speaks more about warning against hypocritical prayer than he does about how to pray itself. And the reason is because Jesus is addressing a universal problem. He's not addressing a first century Jewish problem. He's not addressing a Pharisee problem. He's addressing a universal problem. And that problem is this. It is practicing our righteousness. It is practicing our faith to win the approval of others. The universal problem is he's asking the question, why do we do what we do? And Jesus is unapologetically poking our motives. He's digging around in our motives and asking, why is it that we do what we do? Now, lest we too quickly say, oh man, these Pharisees, you know, praying on street corners, it's helpful to know the tradition of the day. Jews prayed three times a day. Um, They prayed three times a day, and there were certain times when trumpets would sound, particularly in Jerusalem, And when they sounded, it might be during a a fasting day or it might be during sacrifice, seasons of sacrifice, this sort of thing. But when the trumpet sounded, you were to stop what you were doing and you were to face the temple and you were to pray. And so if you happen to be on a street corner or knowing about the time of prayer, if you happen to arrange to be on a street corner uh, and you stopped and prayed and faced the temple, in and of itself, praying out loud on a street corner facing the temple would not be an inappropriate act. The problem is not that, but it is the desire to be seen by others. The hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street. Certainly wouldn't be wrong to pray in a synagogue, right? But they love to stand in the synagogue, love to pray at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. This is the problem. The desire to be recognized, the desire to be respected. It's a desire that says, and this is why it's relatable, I want people to think of me as a praying person. I want people to think of me as a godly person. I want people to think of me as a person who does the right thing, who's committed to Christ, who's involved in the things that matter to God. There's a temptation to want to be, to, to want to be known as holy, to have a reputation for holiness more than we desire to be holy itself. There can be a temptation to want to be known as a godly person, to be known as a praying person more than we are godly and more than we do pray. And that's why this passage and what Jesus says applies to each of us. He contrasts the hypocrite's motive to be seen by others with the proper motive, verse 6, 
When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So rather than seeking to pray to be recognized, pray in your room. Some translations say in your closet. To be seen by the masses, to be seen by the community group, to be seen by the folks down at the church. No, to be seen by God. Because the Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's not a performance. Now, he's not banning public prayer at all. Uh, There's nothing wrong with public prayer. The Bible's filled with public prayer. And as a matter of fact, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer here, is written uh, to be prayed in a corporate, communal kind of context. Because everything is plural. Our Father. We certainly can pray my Father. But here it's our Father. Um, It is our daily bread, our debts. So this very prayer is likely to be used in a corporate situation. It's not the location or public prayer that is problem. The difference between genuine prayer and hypocritical prayer is not the location, street corner, but room, but it, or room. It is the motivation. It is the audience. Verse 5, that they may be seen by others. Verse 6, your father who sees in secret. The difference is, who do we want to see us do the right thing? Who do we want to be aware that we are praying? Others or God? The Lord says if we pray with a motive that is focused on him and not others, that he will reward our prayer. How will he reward it? Well, certainly answering it could be a reward. Uh, The Bible says you have not because you ask not. The Bible's filled with promises and examples of God answering prayer. So we certainly could uh, receive the reward of answered prayer, whereas the hypocrite who prays for others, he says, you've already gotten your reward right there. Someone was impressed with you. That was your reward, as opposed to having God answer your prayer. But probably more than that, it's, it's... communion with the Father. It's encountering God himself. That's what the first half of the prayer is about. It's about God. It's about God's glory. It's about God's work. It's about being a part of God's plan and purpose on the earth. So perhaps the reward is answered prayer, but there's a greater reward. Whatever you're praying for, there's a greater reward, and that's God himself. And we receive that communion and interaction with him when we pray in secret. Okay, so maybe you're saying, now you've explained the sort of Jewish deal and why they prayed this way and how hypocrites pray and what genuine prayer is, but it's still not an issue for me because I don't pray out loud. I don't pray on street corners. So I get the motive thing. I get praying privately, but I don't pray out loud at church. This doesn't apply to me. I don't pray out loud at community groups. This doesn't apply to me. I don't pray out loud at men's group. I don't pray out loud at women's group. So this doesn't apply to me. I'm not guilty because I don't pray out loud. Why not? Why don't you pray out loud? Well, I don't pray out loud in front of others because I'm just not comfortable praying in front of others. Well, why not? Well, you know, I'm afraid I'll get stuck. I might just say, our Father, and then that's all I got. So I don't want to get stuck. Uh, I don't want to trip over my words. I don't want to pray something stupid when everybody else in the room is praying these really eloquent things. I'm afraid that I'll pray something that's already been prayed for. Like earlier when I, my mind wandered, maybe it'll be, <laughs> I don't want to sound stupid for everyone to think, don't you know we've already prayed for that? I, I don't want to do any of those things. Then I would ask, would God be bothered by the fact that your words are simple, that you trip over your words, that you repeat something? Would that bother God? Well, no, that would not bother God. But what would other people think? That's the rub. What would other people think? 
This is a heart issue. So hypocrisy can actually be found, if I could apply this, hypocrisy can actually be found in not praying publicly for the wrong reason, just like it can be found in praying publicly for the wrong reason. The heart of hypocrisy can be found in our silence as much as our showiness in our spiritual responsibilities. The same motivation is present to be thought well of by others by not praying, by not saying something, by not participating in the discussion, by lagging back. We think that, hey, you know, if I just don't say anything, then people won't know how basic or immature or whatever you think of yourself that I am. And we think, well, you know, it'll be easier to be silent, but it can It can just be another measure of the fact that we're overly concerned or primarily concerned with what other people think than what God thinks. The issue is, why do I do what I do? Why did I pray what I prayed in the the corporate setting? Or why did I not pray what I did not pray? Jesus goes on and says, don't pray like a a, a Gentile or a pagan. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So don't pray like a pagan, he says. You say, well, I didn't even know pagans prayed. Well, they do. And uh, he says, don't pray like that. What would be common in uh, in Jesus' day would be for uh, Gentiles to pray by Uh, repeating their request. That's what he's talking about, many words. A repetition of request, and not only a repetition of request, but also they would pray by running through a list of gods. Many gods. Let's run through the list of gods, praying and hoping that the right God hears my request and answers. If I use the right words and I ultimately land on the right God, then I've got a chance to get my prayer answered. And he's saying, don't pray like that. God's not one of those gods. He's the only true God, and he is not driven by that kind of technique, that kind of impersonal technique prayer. He's not driven by empty phrases. He's not driven by many words. And we can relate to this. You may not pray to multiple gods, but we can relate to this because Jesus is going after the tendency that we all have in prayer to pray with the mouth running while the mind and the heart are disengaged. It's the prayer of many words. We can be impersonal. We can be repetitious. We can be wrote with God. Isn't it ironic that the very prayer we're about to study, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, of all prayers in the Bible, that is probably the most likely prayer to be rattled off by rote without engaging the words we are praying, that, that, such that it's empty words. It's not from our heart. We're not considering. We're just reciting rote. Of all the prayers of the Bible, that prayer is likely the one that is to be mo- uh, uttered as an empty phrase with a multiplicity of words when Jesus says don't pray like that don't pray like that you aren't trying to get something out of God by using many words or using the right words or some technique driven approach God responds to sincere simple humble hearts that trust him that's the pattern of the Bible You can't impress God with your words. God loves our faith in him, but even that faith is a gift. You're not going to impress God with your mountain-moving faith or some technique or formula. No, God wants us to come in sincerity and simplicity and humility, thinking more of him than our words and our presentation. You know, I was thinking about prayers in the Bible that are honored, Like there's a prayer and then somebody, God, Jesus says, that's a good prayer in essence. What are those prayers like? Because that's the ones we'd like to find. I thought about the prayer of the tax collector. Here was his prayer, his entire prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went home justified. That prayer got answered. That prayer is preserved uh, 
uh, whether it was just a story as an example or an actual event that happened, that, that was preserved as an example of what pleases the Lord. Something simple, something prayed by a broken person, something sincere, something genuine, something crying out to God in need, not something verbose, flowery, uh, you know, to impress other people or somehow to impress God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. By the way, Jesus says, hey, you know what? Just, just consider this, verse 8. Uh, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So it's not like you're going to be coming with this list of things that you're presenting in, in some verbose, strategic way that God's going, wow, that is good. I hadn't even thought of that. He knows. He's your father. So that's how not to pray, like a hypocrite who's concerned about others, like a pagan who is impersonal, technique-driven, prays without an engaged heart with many words. Don't pray like that. But here's how we are to pray, verse two, uh, verse 9, rather. Pray then like this. It's worth noting he doesn't say pray this. He doesn't say pray this. This wasn't a prayer that was given to be recited. Now, it's not wrong to recite this prayer. It wouldn't be wrong for us in our corporate worship to recite this prayer. So it's, it's, that's not wrong. But it's not used as something that is just to be recited. He doesn't say pray this. He says pray like this. This prayer is an outline. This prayer we're going to see, um, it, it, it outlines major themes or topics that are to concern our prayer life. The first three are about God. So even the order is important. The first three are about God. He first of all teaches us how to address God, our Father in heaven. So it teaches us how to address God in prayer. Then he gives us three petitions, we could say, or three requests about God. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So the first three are all about God. The next three tap into our needs and coming before the Lord. So give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. So there's six petitions. Three are sort of God-centered or God-focused. His name, his kingdom, and his will. His name, his kingdom, and his will. The next three are focused on our needs in prayer. And it's about our provision, our pardon, and our protection. So six different things. It's an outline that begins with God and his glory. It begins with his, the person of God before it moves to our needs. So it's, its structure itself uh, teaches and is informative for us. He starts with the address, our Father in heaven. So he makes it clear to his hearers that we are praying to a God who is, at one, in one sense, distant from us, in heaven. He is transcendent. He is, that means he is above us. He is unlike us. He is completely righteous. He is holy and separated from his creation. He is apart from his creation. He is over his creation. He is the one who spoke and everything came into being. Thus, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is eternal. The God in heaven, the term in heaven points to the fact he is unlike us. He is the God without beginning and without end. He is a glorious God. We can't approach him on our own, the God who is in heaven. But through Christ, he is also our Father. He is our Father in heaven, our heavenly Father. The creator and the sustainer of all the universe is your Father, if you know Jesus as your Lord. Now, this term father is a word that a child would have used to address uh, her dad or his dad. It's a word dad. We could say it that way, dad. And what Jesus is communicating here is so progressive that it was likely scandalous to the first hearers. Because they were very familiar to praying to uh, the Old Testament. God gave his name Yahweh, I am. They were very they were very familiar with praying to I am, the God that Moses had to take his shoes off when he approached this God in the burning bush. They're very aware of the God who is in heaven, 
the God who is the creator. Very aware of the glorious God, but very unaware of addressing God Almighty as Father in prayer. It's virtually an unknown name for God in the first century for Jews. When you read the Psalms, you will not find the Psalms. Go read the Psalms. There are not multiple Psalms where we're being taught to address God as Father. It's not that he's never referred to as the father of his people overall, but it's very rare and it wouldn't have been a typical address to God in prayer. Yet Jesus comes along and he says, this is the primary way you're to address God. Every time you come in prayer, you are to be aware of this, that you're drawing near your father. And that changes everything about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That changes everything about your Christian life. That we don't lose any of the reverence that all the Bible tells us about. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We sang multiple songs about the holiness of God this morning. We don't lose any of that with Jesus. None of that is compromised. Jesus Jesus is holy. Jesus has a holy view of his, his Father. We don't lose any of the reverence, but we gain all the intimacy of speaking with our Father. Welcomed by God, the God of all power and rule, the king whom we have access to. Someone has said that no one would dare disturb and wake up a powerful earthly king in the middle of the night for a drink of water except his son or his daughter. And that's who we come to, the king of the universe who welcomes us with our needs. This is the basis of prayer. Welcome to the king, welcomed by the ruler of all, who is our father. That is foundational to our faith. J.I. Packer has sort of famously talked about how central this is to the Christian faith. He wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. He says if we are not prompted, if we are not driven, if if we're not motivated in our faith by the fact that he is our father, then we've only begun to experience what it means to really follow Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you want to address your father in prayer, if you want to address God in prayer, here's how you start, father. Now, after teaching us how to relate to God, he then gives us these six petitions that are sort of an outline or a model for how we are to pray. I'm going to briefly, I'm going to move through this fast. I'm going to briefly touch on each of these, and then we're going to pray. So the first one is his name. He says, verse Uh, This is verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. That's not a word we use very much, but it means to set apart. It means to set apart as holy. So when speaking of God, hallowed be your name, it means that, Lord, in my life, I want to reverence your name. I want to honor you as God. It's a request asking that we would be able to glorify his name. His name is his person. When God gives, there's multiple names for God. Uh, here's, here's one, Father, but multiple names for God revealed throughout the Bible. And each time he reveals a name, it reveals something about his character, the God who heals, the God who provides, uh, God Almighty. These are names of God that were given that revealed who he is and I am that I am, reveal what he's like. And so in this situation, if we want to honor the name of God, it means that we live in such a way that our lives reflect who he really is and what he's really like. So Jesus is starting the model prayer with a focus on the glory of God. He's in essence essence to pray, hallowed be your name is, Lord, in my life, would you be glorified? Would you draw attention to yourself through me? Would you enable me to live in such a way that I pursue obedience to you and a life of holiness that that reflects who you are and what you've done? It's an all-encompassing request. It's saying, Heavenly Father, may we all think and speak and do, may everything we speak, everything we think, everything we do, honor your holiness. 
Prayer starts with God and not with us. It starts with coming to a father with a heart that says, Lord, I want to glorify you. I want to hallow your name. I want your character to be set apart and honored and glorified in my life. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me in prayer to just quickly jump from Father, Father in heaven, here's my list, to quickly move to my needs. But this is not how Jesus says to pray. We start with God's glory. Next is kingdom. Your kingdom, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. In one sense, the kingdom of God has already come in Jesus. We've seen that as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes bringing the kingdom. So in one sense, the kingdom is already here. The kingdom is the rule and the reign of Christ. And so his kingdom has come as he came and demonstrated his power and his rule and his reign. And ultimately, as he dies for our sins, as he rises from the dead, and as he defeats sin, he defeats death, he defeats the evil one, so that all who believe in him are now a part of his kingdom. We're living our lives under his rule and under his reign. And as kingdom people, we long for him to return and completely establish his kingdom. He's already established it, but it's not yet uh, fully established on earth until he's here in person. So we live in this period of already, but not yet. The kingdom is already here. The reign of God is already present in his people, but it's not yet here in its fullness. So we live between the times of his first and second coming. He's already come to bring the kingdom, but it's not yet here in its fullness. So this prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, is a prayer for his rule and his reign, first of all, to deepen in our own lives that his rule and his reign would touch every aspect of our lives, that it would go deep into every sphere of our lives, every responsibility, every role that we have, be that a role, a family role, a work role, a friend role, a service role, a church role, whatever role we have, a neighbor role, that he would work deeply in all those, that his kingdom would be reflected. But it's much more than that. It's that your kingdom come as a prayer that the reign of God would spread that we would see his rule and reign spread into all the world through all of his people. We pray that it would not only spread deep in our lives, but it would spread through us to others. We want to see the rule and the reign touch not only our lives, but everyone in our family. We want to know Christ. Not only our family, but we want everyone in our neighborhood to know Christ. We want the kingdom, the rule and reign of God to spread throughout our city for people who know nothing today, that are walking around in blindness, in darkness, people walking around in spiritual death. We pray, may your kingdom come to awaken them to the fact that Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning. So we pray for his kingdom to spread throughout our country. Our country is in desperate need for the kingdom of God to be on display from the people of God. Our world, there's places in the world where millions are apart from a gospel witness. And we pray, God, would your kingdom come to unreached peoples throughout the world? And we pray that we not only ask that, but we help support that in whatever ways God calls us to. Dan Doriani, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, which is at our resource center, he wrote, about this line, your kingdom come. We pray that the blessings of salvation would, will flow, that the church will grow in size and influence, that Christians will grow in maturity, and that we would obey Jesus in every sphere of life. It's a prayer for expansion of the kingdom, a, a deepening of the kingdom in our life, in our church, and an expansion of the kingdom wherever God calls us and to whatever relationships we have. So let your kingdom come, God. Do more. Do more. May your reign be known and experienced all around us. His kingdom, your kingdom come. Next, your will be done. We pray for God's will to be done in our lives, in our families, in our church, our city, again, our nation, and our world. It, it's coming to God and acknowledging that he, you are the king, you rule, you're sovereign, and I am submitting my will to yours. Jesus models this in Gethsemane when he prays, if there's any other way than going through the crucifixion, if there's any other way to restore believing humanity who've fallen away from God, if there's any other way, let it be. But if not, not my will, but yours. Jesus prays, not my, he, he, he humbles himself and prays for the will 
of the Father. We want the will of God expressed on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, help us to honor you. Lord, help us to obey your word. Lord, help us to fulfill the purposes you have for us, the callings that you have given to us. Help us to fulfill those, that your will would be done in our lives so that our little spot on this globe would look more like heaven. The reign of God would be visible through the people of God as the love of God comes out through us toward others. So this prayer is, this is a different take on prayer than many of us are familiar with. Not my take, Jesus' take. It starts with the glory of God. Prayer starts not with my needs. We'll get there. But it starts with God. The reason I'm breathing your air on planet earth is I am called to live for your glory. May your name be renowned through my life. May you be revered in my life. Uh, may, may you, Lord, hallow your name through me. May your name be set apart as holy. May your person and your character be known all around us. So it's a prayer that for the holiness of God in us and around, uh, through us. It's a prayer as well that we not only start with his name, but his kingdom spreading. Lord, I'm not here to build my kingdom This isn't about my rule and my reign and my influence and my platform. God, this is about your rule, your reign, your influence, your platform. May you be platformed in my life. May your kingdom, your rule and reign spread. And may your will be done. Lord, we submit ourselves to your word and to your plans. We embrace your plans even when they're not the way we would have scripted things. We embrace them as what is best. We embrace you and we trust you and we submit ourselves to you. That's how the prayer starts with those three emphases. His name, his kingdom, his will. Next he moves into our needs. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Now the prayer for daily bread was first of all prayer for food. Prayer for food. It includes more than that, but it's first of all a prayer where we humbly acknowledge that we need God to meet our physical needs. And that's really foreign. We think, well, I've got a job and I get a paycheck and that's how I get my food. And so we live with this sort of arrogance. We're not aware that our lives could change in a moment. Where did you get that job? Who provided that? Who gave you the ability to do the job you do? So it is, Lord, provide food for us daily. In this country, we are so accustomed to affluence that this petition has lost its meaning for us. Most of us are not praying for today's food. Most people, when we have a prayer time, in all the years that we've been up here and had a prayer time, I can't remember anybody coming up and saying, my prayer is that I would have food for lunch today. Because I'm completely destitute. I have nothing. We're a, a, now, some people have needs, obviously. But daily bread, many of us don't pray that prayer. In our culture, we battle obesity and not hunger. Our challenge in this culture is how do we, for Christians, how do we properly steward all the blessings God's given us It's like we're swimming. We're drowning in blessings. So how do we use all these? That's really the reality for us. While preparing this message, I read a story which I just thought captivated how far American culture is away from the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, In my news feed came a story about Costco. I like Costco, but when I read this, and Costco is not about your daily bread, is it? Costco is about bulk, and uh, so, but I like Costco, and so I, when I saw this headline, I said, I must investigate, so I'm preparing the sermon about things like Daily Bread, and I read this headline, Costco sells out, this is in a major news publication, Costco sells out of 26-pound mac and cheese tub with 20-year shelf life. I'm sorry to report, if you were getting it after church, it's gone, it's gone. The article says the wholesaler made news this week for selling out of its 26-pound bucket of macaroni and cheese that has a shelf life of up to 20 years. 
The cheese and pasta are packaged in separate bulk metalite pouches with oxygen absorbers to, quote, protect the quality and ensure a long shelf life. Yeah, I would say 20 years. We're not talking about this, you know, best if used by June of 2019. We're talking about best if used by June of 2038 or 39 or whatever that would be. 20 years. Lord, give us these two decades, our mac and cheese. May it still be good. And I don't know, unless you are feeding an army or an entire school, I I can't imagine anybody's need for 26 pounds of mac and cheese, but it's available if that is your need. Now, I went on and read the story. I won't tell you all the details, but it was really about not just the mac and cheese, but it was about the fact that Costco has been rolling out several products for doomsday scenarios. So you can now go to Costco and spend 1000 to 6000 bucks. I mean, that just describes every trip to Costco, but you can spend 1000 to 6000 bucks getting food, which will feed family a four for a year and emergency kits and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if this was part of it, uh, but it's part of, you know, doomsday. Uh, Jesus says, don't panic and freak out about doomsday tubs of mac and cheese. Jesus says, do this. Just pray. Give us today our daily bread. His first hearers could not have imagined the story that I just read. Give us today our daily bread. God calls us to trust him daily, to ask daily, to recognize that we are vulnerable daily. It could, this could be a prayer for anything you need materially. It could be a prayer for your finances. It could be a prayer for physical strength. Maybe you battle injury or illness or a, you're getting older. You pray for physical strength or mental strength. You pray for God, give, us, give me today healing and health for my body. Grant me sleep. That's daily bread. You have to have sleep to live. Lord, give me the gift of sleep. Give us today our daily bread. We're asking God to provide and to empower us to accomplish all that he's called us to do. It's a call to humility, to not have a stockpile so that I don't have to lean on God. I'm not saying you can't have food in the pantry and have a freezer, obviously, but it's, that's not my hope. It means that my hope is not stockpiling resources. My hope is in God who provides everything. Our, our provision, our pardon just as we need daily bread, we need daily forgiveness. Forgive us our forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those uh, who are our debtors. We're forgiven in Christ, but we're still called to admit our sins, to mention them by name, to confess to the Lord our sins. And when we do that on a regular basis, a daily basis, uh, you know, as we prayed for daily bread, daily forgiveness, we are highlighting the power of the gospel because we are remembering the beans of our forgiveness. We are to keep short accounts with God. And when we do that, we daily celebrate his power, the good news that we sing about at church, that our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. It's the reality that, Lord, here's where I have failed. Here's where I have not done your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's in my life where I've not done your will. But I thank you that Jesus died for my sins and for my forgiveness I thank you for that, and I receive your mercy afresh. We also forgive those who've sinned against us, because as we have received forgiveness, we are to share it with those who are our debtors. Those who've received forgiveness will forgive others. And last, so we need to pray for that daily as well. Lord, who, whom have I, uh, who, who, who do I need to forgive? Last, our protection, our provision, our pardon, our protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God never wants us to sin. God never leads us to sin. That's the work of the enemy. Now, the Lord does test us and lead us into testing. Jesus went into a a testing back in chapter 4 when he was tempted by Satan as he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. This probably means something like, lead us not into temptation. Do not let us fail the test. Or one commentator said it means, do not let us give in to temptation. And when we are tested, don't let us be overcome by evil. Or this can be translated the evil one. Don't let, us be, don't let us be overcome by the evil one. It's a prayer for protection. And again, it keeps the gospel in view. Jesus died and rose not only to forgive us for our sins, but to empower us to obey him. 
And so it's a prayer to say, Lord, when temptation comes, help me to say yes to you. And the power to say yes to you is the empty grave and the Holy Spirit poured out in my life and my union with Christ. So the gospel is on display in these prayer requests. Empower us to stand. Remind us daily of our weakness. That's what's so clear about this. We're reminded of our weakness. We need daily bread. We need daily forgiveness every day. We need daily protection for all that we face in temptation and from the evil one. We are weak and need his strength. And so isn't it powerful that he starts not with our needs, but he starts with his character. The God of heaven is our father. That stirs our faith. That's an incentive to lean on him and to rely upon him. We pray for his power in his kingdom to come. We pray for his will to be done. So after we see God as the glorious one, the all-powerful one, the one who rules and reigns, after we see all that, then we come to our needs with faith, with an awareness of who this God is, asking for provision and pardon and protection. In many ways, the entire picture Uh, The entire prayer is like a picture of life in the kingdom. It starts with God's glory. It moves to the spreading of his glory and his reign to all people. It's concerned with his will being done in all places so that our section of the world and all the world looks more like heaven, that the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's about God living in God's power. It's about seeing our weakness daily, regularly, and leaning upon his power for our provision, for our pardon, for our power to forgive others, and to guard us in temptation. It's pardon and protection. It concerns all the stuff that really matters in life. You can find all the stuff that really matters in life in these six requests. It's no surprise because God himself gave us this way to pray. Now, what I'd like to do is I'm going to close by praying. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to actually do a little exercise. We're going to pray through this together. So let me close by just praying. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you speak and that you have spoken to us about how we uh, are to commune with you. And now as we uh, pray, we pray that you would empower us to be those who glorify you, those those who rely upon you, those who know you by the prayer that you have taught us to pray. Lord, for those of us who are prayerless, we pray that we would not be condemned, but rather we would ask forgiveness. Forgive us the debt of prayerlessness and self-sufficiency. And we pray that you would renew us to be those who commune with you through the prayer that you have given us. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Stand. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a section, and then I'm going to let ask you a question, then I'm going to allow you just to be silent and pray in the Lord. So this is, if that was the lecture, I hope it didn't feel like a lecture, but if that was a lecture, this is the lab. We're now going to practice what we have learned. So let's pray first of all, our Father in heaven. So you just silently take a moment and communicate your gratitude to God that he is your Father, that the God of heaven is your Father. Thank him and Adore him as the one who welcomes you and cares for you as a father. Hallowed be your name. Ask God to empower you to live in a way that brings glory to him in all of your life. Maybe you're aware this morning of some specific areas that you really want to honor the Lord and glorify him in. Bring those to, uh, lift those up to him and ask that he would empower you to reflect his holiness and honor his name. Your kingdom come. 
ask for his reign to go deeper in your own life and ask for his reign to spread through you to others. Ask that others may know of the reign of Christ through you and through our church and specifically pray for Alpha, which begins this Tuesday, that his kingdom may come, that people right now who don't know him or who are new believers, that Lord, that his reign would come and spread. So pray for Alpha and for your own life. Your kingdom come, Lord. done on earth as it is in heaven. Ask God to help you obey him. Freshly submit your will to his. Where do you need in your life to pray, not my will, but yours, Lord? Where do you need to bow your knee to his word and his will? Offer that to him. Offer yourself to him. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. We transition into our needs, our daily bread. Take a moment and speak to God about your needs. Acknowledge wherever you need his provision today and ask, ask for him to meet your needs. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Confess any sin that comes to mind uh, before the Lord and also anyone that you need to forgive. Ask for God's power to extend forgiveness to that person just as he has forgiven you. us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Where are you tempted today? Ask for strength and ask for power uh, over that temptation by the power of the gospel of the work of Christ. Pray that the Lord would give you strength to not be lured by the evil one. thank you that you are glorious, that you are worthy, and we pray that you would help us as a people, Lord, to commune with you and to pray in this manner and in this way. Instruct us, lead us. Would you enliven our prayer lives, Lord, to be, to be spaces and times of sweet communion, and we see you work in this coming year in 2019. May you draw us to yourself. May we know you better as the Heavenly Father. May we see your name glorified, your kingdom come, your will be done. May we recount over and over your provision. May we celebrate the good news of your pardon, forgiveness. May we forgive others. And Lord, may we be guarded and protected spiritually from temptation and from the evil one. We pray this prayer and pray that this would be the kingdom of purpose that we would experience as a church in 2019. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.